One thing that I believe people need to understand about energy is that there's a lot of things that we need to do in order to make sure that everyone can afford and live a healthy and sustainable life. One of the biggest challenges right now is that in all of our climate change adaptation strategies, trying to protect people from heat waves, trying to protect people from deep freezes, these hinge on energy. Energy is the essential service that enables all other essential services. If you don't have electricity in your home, it turns into a giant tent. And that's not what we want people to have to go through. I know this from personal experience. Last winter, my tenants in a property that my husband and I manage were trying to minimize their energy consumption. And unfortunately, that led to the pipes freezing in the entire property. That meant that we had to have our refugee family without water for three weeks while we struggled to find a plumber because everyone in the city was also struggling to find plumbers. And the other person in the bottom unit of our rental property was no longer able to live there because the entire kitchen was unusable. So not only does lack of energy use lead to housing issues, but the reverse can also happen. Housing issues can lead to energy problems where houses without insulation use tons of energy. Houses that do not have pipes properly insulated can lead to families being without water for matters of weeks, if not months. So energy and housing are completely tied. And one of the biggest things I hope people take away from this is that we need to come up with solutions to look at the intersecting nature of energy poverty and in the energy transition making sure that people can use energy to have a safe and affordable quality of life is something that I think is extremely important. We started in hard times to bring us all in, into the laughter through thick and through thin, for public power enthusiasts without and within. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. I'm Paul Dockery, a co-host of Public Power Underground and Senior Manager of Energy Resource Strategy and Planning for Seattle City Light. And I'm Almaz Nagesh, the co-host of Public Power Underground and Power Planner for Tacoma Power. Joining Almaz and I as this week's celebrity guest star is Professor Destiny Nock. And I have been super excited and looking forward to this episode, Destiny. Um, so Dr. Destiny Knock works as a professor at Carnegie Mellon University in the Engineering and Public Policy and Civil and Environmental Engineering Departments. She's also the co-founder and chief executive officer of People's Energy Analytics, an energy justice-based energy justice-based startup company. Um, and she's also the chief sustainability officer for DevStream, a technology-based ESG company. Professor Nock, welcome. Um, can we call you Destiny? Yes, you should definitely call me Destiny. All right. I'm really excited about this. Your cold open touched on all this nexus of energy and utility and the underlying need for the utility of electric service, which is one of the things uh, Almaz is constantly talking to me about is like this public good of utility service. I'm very excited about this. Yeah, me too. I think that the intersection of energy and all other facets of our life is just growing as we are moving 
down the pipe of electrification, we're electrifying our transportation, our houses are becoming much more energy intensive than they used to be. And I think that it's a great conversation to be having as we are thinking about how our energy system is shifting. You know what, what I, I think what what kind of struck me in your introduction, though, Destiny, is when, when you were describing um, the, the, the impact of a family just trying to save money, how ultimately it ended up being more costly than just having affordable energy to begin with. And I, I think we lose sight of that so much. Like if we could just um, have, uh, you know, get at root causes and ensure that people have basic services, that probably is going to come out much cheaper than than the, the sort of hodgepodge um assistance programs that we have today. So I am I'm looking forward to us getting getting into this and 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 learning more about some of the approaches that you're taking to energy justice. Yeah, I think too like when I think back to the Christmas episode that happened in Pittsburgh, I mean, that took us 6 months to fix awesome. that house, right? So not only was it that their pipes froze and then we had to go into the ceiling of the bottom unit. So luckily it was a top bottom duplex, right? So we were able to get in to fix both at one time. Um, but that meant that the bottom unit had to get their entire ceiling, almost all the walls, the entire, all the kitchen cabinets, the kitchen sink, all the bathroom cabinets, the toilet, everything had to come off the walls and we had to replace all of the pipes. And so then we haven't been able to get somebody to fix the kitchen for six months, right? Yeah, like it was, and I'm like, we were doing this to support our retirement. That was good. Sometimes I'm like, oh my goodness, was this really the investment that we chose? I mean, now that it's been fixed, it's been fixed for two weeks, right? And I'm like, thank goodness, because it was a long road coming, just trying to get the insurance, trying to find a contractor, the Insurance, you know, said that they would offer eighteen thousand for us to restore their property, but the provider that they recommended said it would cost thirty-two thousand dollars to Whoa. fix the entire property, and they wouldn't cover the pipes; they would only cover the restoration of the walls and things. And so that was like really big for us because before you can even get to paying an energy bill, we had to secure all of the pipes, all of the water and everything. And then now we have to go back and make sure we didn't short anything out with all that water that had flooded the uh, downstairs unit. So it was definitely a learning experience. Yeah, costly learning experience, a painful learning experience. Um, but before we get into it, it sounds like you two have and worked together or at least knew each other before this episode. I have not met you yet, Professor Ock, but do I do I understand correctly you've interacted before, Amaz? Yes. Yeah, so I've I've talked to I've had a few conversations with uh, with Destiny before. I think last year is when I officially met Destiny. But I've I've been fo- a huge follower uh, on LinkedIn of all and and just your your work in general. So. Um, yeah, I had to reach out and meet Destiny Knock last year. <laughs> well, I'm honored. Yeah. Yes. Well, this is very exciting. I think I'm ready to get into it. We're already into the conversation about the nexus of energy and equity and all that. So if we're ready, let's get into it. Let's do it. Let's do it. On Public Power Underground, we talk about the electric utility enthusiasm trifecta of electrification, markets, and people. On today's episode of Public Power Underground, we're asking Professor Knock what the future of the grid should look like. 
We'll talk about ways to unveil hidden energy poverty, consider ways to change the policy paradigm, and discuss ways to amplify community leader perspectives in energy planning. Almaz will, a- will ask an unscripted question in the segment we call Almaz's Insightful Question of the Week. Then we'll close it out with a wonky energy-inspired game that I'm just super excited for. Uh, before we get started, a quick word from our presenting sponsor. Almaz, did you know nuclear energy is America's largest source of climate-friendly power? Is that a thing you knew? I did not know that. I would have said hydro. Um, I, okay. Well, nuclear is probably in more parts of the country probably than hydro. Hydro's very river specific. I think. Yeah, I'm 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 very focused on the Northwest. In yeah, America, you're that. probably right. Yes, nuclear yeah, sounds right. Love that about you. Okay. In fact, nuclear energy provides about 50% of the country's carbon-free electricity. And Energy Northwest, our friends at Energy Northwest, is a premier provider of carbon-free electricity in the Pacific Northwest. Energy Northwest mission is to provide safe, reliable, cost-effective, responsible power generation and innovative energy and business solutions to its public power members and regional customers. Energy Northwest is proudly advancing the Northwest clean energy future. To learn more, do you know want to do you want to know how to learn more, Almaz? Yeah, give me the info. I need to know more. Okay. Okay, let's let's learn more. To learn more about Energy Northwest, visit their website at energy-northwest.com. That's energy-northwest.com. Okay, Amaz, why don't you kick off the discussion? All right. So, we're framing our discussion through the lens of what the future of the grid should look like. It's a topic we haven't explicitly addressed, but we have had some adjacent discussions about. So Paul and I recently recorded an episode with Dr. Emily Grubert and Dr. Frank Copera on the mid-transition. And during the discussion, Dr. Grubert noticed, noted the importance of changing our planning paradigm during the energy transition to think more about our social systems like transportation and housing instead of the power system so that we can make sure to protect the most vulnerable populations while we phase off our fossil fuel-based energy system. And so, Destiny, uh, a paper that you published in April 2022 titled, quote, Changing the energy policy, changing the policy paradigm, excuse me, uh, a benefit maximization approach to electricity planning in developing countries, unquote. Um, So this paper developed a methodology for finding the optimal expansion of a power system under the objective of maximizing social benefit, which seems like the direction all of our power planning needs to head, right? So right now we tend to be just about cost minimization, and this is a completely different paradigm. So I'm wondering if we can start off by letting us know, are, are there any lessons on social system planning that we can learn from your research? I think one of the things that we took away from that research was that getting people's preferences for equality and equity into the models is so important because it really does change what that optimal cost system looks like. So if you ever have, you know, saying like, oh man, like we had these targets, but now the money was spent in ways that we didn't anticipate, a lot of times there's different equity objectives driving that, whether it be distribution of costs between different community groups or their supporters, their constituents, right? Like you get these wonky maps sometimes. And throughout that work, we were seeing that larger systems did end up leaning themselves to be more equitable as compared to distributed systems oftentimes. 
Oh, that is a very interesting. So, so oh my goodness. Um, oh, so, you're gonna love this. It's it's also like on transmission was a big forcing factor yeah. of equitable solutions, right? Keep going, yeah. Almas. I just want to make sure that got in there because that's a we love talking about transmission, don't we, Almas? Well, yes. Um, and it, you, there are there's a a large community of people who feel that there's a need for more distributed energy resources and that there might be a benefit in that, you know, people have more local control um, and, and, and for whatever reason, but they feel like distributed, the, the, the future is going to have a lot more distributed energy resources and that it would be more equitable. Uh, but that's, that's, uh, there's not research that backs it. It is there. It's, it's a lot of um, high level thinking about what the architecture of the future um, looks like. So, I'm I'm actually quite intrigued to hear that this was a, a finding of your research. Um, Paul, you just touched on that there was some transmission um, finding in, in there as well. Could you speak more to that, um, Destiny? Yeah, so I think that distributed energy will be a part of the grid of the future and there are benefits. So like if you have distributed energy, not leaving it at every individual household, but maybe now you are connecting like community wide microgrids where you're allowing like behind the meter trading and you're able to share resources. The thing that leads to the equitable component of these larger systems is the sharing of resources, which is why transmission is so important. A lot of times people ask me what my favorite energy technology is. And normally I say transmission because everybody works better together when it's there. Right. And okay. with okay. like distributed with distribution lines as well. Right. Like if I have solar panels on my home, but, you know, I'm not there all day, but my neighbor maybe is a nurse that works at night, then they should be able to benefit from that solar. Now, the other thing, too, is we need to account for people that don't necessarily have the capabilities to adopt that solar to adopt those distributed energy sources, right? And that are the renters. They are the people with roofs that are not up to code. They may be people that don't have fiber optic cables or can't communicate well with, you know, their technologies or they might not have Wi-Fi to manage the system remotely. So those are going to be things that we need to take into account. Um, when I was in Ghana and we were doing uh, workshop to see about these distributed systems. One challenge was that when the batteries tanked out, they the systems were abandoned. And so then you have that question of, will that happen in the United States? Of when a low-income person has to re-up on their infrastructure, their batteries, their components, fix everything, maybe replace some of the panels, if the subsidies are gone or if there's not that influx of funds, will they be able to do that? Will they be able to continue making that investment, especially if they have to replace the entire roof? Right? Roofs are like $30,000. And just as a reminder to all those listening, minimum wage in the United States would give you about $15,000 for the entire year. Right. And so now you are asking somebody for to do something double their salary. And that's just may not happen. Wow. 
Um, could you speak a little bit more to um, specific when you say that um, the the centralized system or was more equitable or, or fair than than the distributed? Um, can you give me some examples of of how you measured um, fairness or or justice or equity um, when you were doing that comparison? So when we were looking at measuring it, we were using the Gini coefficient, which is a measure of how much elect how electricity is distributed across the population and across regions. Okay. So for example, if everybody has can use five kilowatt hours, then the Gini coefficient is zero, meaning it's complete equality. Um, everybody can use five. Now, if one person has all the kilowatt hours and everybody else has zero. The Gini coefficient is one representing complete inequality. People can't use what they need. And then in equity, when you tie in equity, you kind of get into, okay, how many people can use this tier of electricity, which would allow for air conditioning units, like washers and dryers, cell phone lighting. So that's where the equality versus equity comes into play. So when we were looking at the larger grid systems and why they were more equitable, it was because it was leaning itself towards more capabilities of using air conditioning units, uh, electrifying your washer and dryer, electrifying your cooking, whereas the distributed systems were more cell phone charging and lighting and um, smaller things, which are still very valuable, right? That's very valuable, especially for people that don't have it right now. But as people wanted to use these larger appliances, and as we're thinking about electrifying transportation, right? If people wanted to be able to charge at their homes, sometimes you need a huge solar panel to do that, right? Like the solar panels, you can't do it with some tiny little thing. Sometimes you need like a very large system to be able to handle that amount of power output. And so that can get really expensive because it's not a linear growth. Like sometimes it looks more exponential. I see. So I, um, is this Gini coefficient um, something that could be used uh, or applied in, in the U U.S. and in our planning as well? Is that something that's transferable, you think? I think so, because the Gini coefficient is really a measure to look at the distribution of something across a population. Historically, people have used to look at income distributions, and that has been done in developed and developing countries. But if we're thinking about other things we care about in the electricity system, like the distribution of charging stations, right? Like you could use the Gini coefficient to do that. You'd look at different population groups, um, the distribution of outages right? The distribution of uh, solar panels, right? Community solar installations. So where people can participate in community solar, do all regions have that for people to do? And that is something that you can also use the Gini coefficient to do. As I understand it, you use the Gini coefficient as like a uh, after the fact measure to figure out how your the the outcome that came out of your optimization model it isn't an optimization model it's like a budget constraint model okay uh, uh, the optimization, optimization model okay um you measured how that how that output compared on the gini coefficient if i understand it right but one of the inputs and i'll let you I'll, go 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 ahead Did i understand uh, that right <laughs> yeah you did so it is an optimization model, but we would call it like a social welfare maximization optimization, whereas most people are looking at a cost minimizing optimization. 
And so really, this is a form of a multi-objective optimization model where we have just constrained one of the objectives, which was the cost. And so on the input side, we did have a person's preference for equality. So this just says, um, normally, if you don't care at all about equality, you would have like what we call like a linear preference where everybody like gets, has like the same increasing value, no matter how many electrons you give them. But if you have more of like a logarithmic, like equality uh, preference, then that means you give a very high value for taking someone from zero to 10 kilowatts as opposed to taking them from 100 to 110 kilowatts. And so then that high benefit leads itself more towards um, a high equality preference because like you're like, okay, whoever doesn't have electricity, I'm gonna focus on you because I get a higher value from giving you electricity. But with a linear preference, it just says, I don't care if I go from zero to 10 or 100 to 110, it's all the same value to me. Um, and so then the question was, okay, from these inputs, we have different decision makers with different preferences and, and values that they put on giving people that first 10 kilowatts or that hundredth kilowatt. Now we wanna see how did that actually change the equity of the outcome, right? So now we have equity in terms of the income, uh, sorry, inputs, and equity in terms of the outputs. And we were seeing that as the budget increased, regardless of the preference, you saw these bigger and bigger systems come online, focus in the city centers where the populations are, and then you get the hub and spoke that we kind of have right now. But the largest difference was when the budget was very tightly constrained, you did see a lot more solar and um, solar and battery technologies and diesel mini grids coming up in these the ones with the high quality preferences, right? And that made it uh, that made a big difference. But you didn't see those in the people that didn't care at all about equality whatsoever. You just saw them in the cities. That that makes perfect sense. It's it's, it's very logical a logical conclusion. I guess the thing that made it like interesting in terms of research is like normally we didn't see that in models, right? Like you kind of yeah. saw yep. people tweaking it, but even though it makes sense, we hadn't seen it in the mathematical form, you know. And 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 it's absolutely not done in practice. Like we 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 it it's implicit. We don't actually say it, but the way it, because our our models are cost based, it's an inherent um, um, statement that we don't care about justice or equity in in um, provision of our resources because we're not we're not putting explicitly putting that in in our in our uh, model so um i'm I, yeah I'm, I'm thrilled to see to see the academic research actually sh showing us the these types of results and the type of methodologies too one of the the fascinating things i i garnered from this was I think you called it the inequality aversion parameter and the way you you're optimizing around uh, around that preference. And then the next paper we'll talk about, I think, ways that you can survey those uh, preferences from customers. But I wanted to like talk a little bit about um, this utility maximizing approach to power planning in this context, because it seems like in this period of electrify everything, maybe this kind of revised approach to not focus on just least cost service because our our utility is expanding 
uh, for different use cases, whether it is uh, if we should start thinking or, or start using this approach more not from to make sure we're expanding our service in equitable ways, not just providing our service in least cost ways. Yeah, I think that I would love to see the discussion move more towards what are the benefits that we want people to receive from the electricity system and let's measure the success of our energy transition against that. I think that it's really easy for the conversation to shift towards greenhouse gas emission reduction, air pollution emission reduction, because these things are very easy to measure, right? Like you have the energy output, you can estimate very quickly how many greenhouse gas emissions or air pollution emissions come from that. But thinking about how we want to reduce air pollution emissions across different regions, how many households we need to upgrade the fiber optic cables to in order to enable them to even adopt solar panels, because that is a barrier that oftentimes goes unnoticed, right? If people don't have consistent enough supply to communicate with the panels, if you're getting a lot of outages, right, then that will actually lead you to have that sort of inequity or if people don't have air conditioners right in their homes then let's look at like do they do we have a stable enough grid to allow people to adapt to heat waves to allow people to use their air conditioners but a lot of times we miss you know do people even have air conditioners and sometimes when i've talked to different people about this they're like well the goal is to get people to use less. So if I go out and look for people that don't have air conditioners and all of a sudden invest in a bunch of air conditioners, now people are using more. And I'm like, but people are like dying from heat waves. Like this is a big problem. And sometimes people should use more. And so I think that when we are only focused on like least costs, make the system cheaper, get people to use less, you know, that misses that there are some parts of the population that cannot use enough energy right now. And so as we're building out the system, we want to make sure that we don't repeat those same problems. And so then with the utility maximization, it's like, okay, well, let's make sure everybody can use an air conditioner during a heat wave, right? And if we want to maximize that, given our budgets, right, and given where air conditioners currently are, where are we going to upgrade those lines? Where are we going to invest in community solar or wind first? Where are we going to uh, invest in undergrounding of lines because people may have air conditioners, but their outages are occurring at the middle of the day most of the time, right? And so now we need to upgrade the lines in that way. There's different ways to, I have a lot of different ideas about how to use utility maximization to try to get to where we want to be. But I think a lot of times we miss like, why is the electricity system not working? Let's talk about that. There are some people that use more than maybe their fair share, but there's a lot of people that are struggling to even get close to what they need in order to protect themselves and their families from heat risk and risk of deep freezes. See, yeah, we, we haven't even gotten halfway through and I already know we're going to have to invite Destiny back again because like this is th this hour and a half is not going to be enough time, but... I want to hear all the ideas, Destiny. <laughs> yes, all the ideas. It does, uh, Amaz, it does remind me of that conversation with Dr. Gruber, where we are. We talked in that interview about um, making sure you're planning for these social systems. And and I would 
reframe some of that conversation around maximizing the utility of what you're constraining for around the budget or, yeah. or really, you know, energy and use, uh, maximizing yeah. that utility. I, I like to say nobody actually buys electrons. We buy the things that electrons power. Um, so we, yeah, if we're doing our job, we should be looking at benefits maximization. I do think, it, uh, and I'll just share this perspective. I, I do view pu the public power mission as being r really favorable to this framework because it is like we are serving our customers' yep. needs. We're serving customers' energy needs. Um, and we like to do that at low cost, but insofar as a customer gets more value out of something, uh, if they're willing to pay for it, that's like, wholly within our our mission to provide services, value-added services. We got a lot more to talk about. We've started teeing up the second and the third article we're going to get to, but so I'll, I'll, we'll hit the typewriter and post. Take it away, Almaz. All right. So there are three papers that you, um, Destiny, have contributed to that we're going to touch on today. First was, quote, changing the policy paradigm of a benefit maximization approach to electricity planning in developing countries, unquote. Um, the second is titled, Who is Marginalized in Energy Justice? Amplifying Community Leader Perspectives of Energy Transitions in Ghana. Uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing about that one. Um, uh, the paper, uh, as you uh, mentioned in there, quote, provides a bridge between the social knowledge and the technical knowledge needed to plan the evolution of the power system, end quote. And as you noted in the paper, to implement uh, a preference into a model, it must be rigorously measurable. A tool in the paper to convert surveys into quantities is the, quote, strategic objective hierarchy, which is described as a visual method for structuring objectives. Now, that was that was a whole lot. So and we're going to need you to distill that down for our listeners. Can you explain uh, what that is and how it helps? So having a visual of the different objectives in that strategic objective hierarchy is important because there are a lot of things that we care about, but we don't care about them all equally, right? And there are certain things that feed into each other. So if you go to a decision maker, and I'll just take an example from the paper. When we were in Ghana, a person said, I want wind. I was like, great. Why do you want wind? And he goes, because it's sustainable. I'm like, that's great. Sustainable in what way, right? So Right, right now we have the lower level objective of I want wind, right? And then now the new objective is because I want to be sustainable. And sometimes people leave it there of like, oh, this person cares about going green. But when I asked, okay, sustainable in what way? He said, because then we can grind our grains and we can create jobs for my community, right? And so then I'm like, oh, okay. And then you have one more. What do you hope the jobs will bring? And he goes, more money better economic stability is essentially what he said, right? So now we have to work back because a lot of people can say, you know, I want a sustainable energy system. But the question that will help us understand like when people are disagreeing is what does a sustainable energy system look like to you? And to this specific community leader, he was a chief of a tribe. He was thinking about economic stability for his community. Um, and so then it was really interesting because now at the top, we would have economic stability 
And one way that he sees that is through grain milling, because that's the dominant part in his town, because it's very agriculturally focused. And then he wanted to use wind to do that. He wanted to get electricity to do that so he could have a wind turbine. So then I had the you know opportunity just to say, well, you know that you don't actually need to have a wind turbine that converts the mechanical energy to electrical energy to convert it back to mechanical energy because wind turbines were originally designed to grind things. You don't actually <laughs> need the electricity part in there, right? I know we're on a utility podcast, <laughs> so maybe that's not what we want to hear on this one. But um, it was just very interesting to think about leapfrogging of technologies and how sometimes that knowledge gets lost, right? And so then with them, the grid being a little shaky as it is, being that um, they had other things that they could electrify. It's like, okay, well, if you can you know, use the wind turbines to grind your grains, could you use electricity in your region for something else in that process? The Maybe the deshelling process for peanuts, right? There's uh, the shea tree out there, shea butter, if anybody uses it. It's a really great moisturizer if you haven't used it. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, so like, you know, then you could think about other economic opportunities and not just get situated in like, okay, we're going to use this one technology for this one thing, but there's many things that they could do. And then also now it opens up, okay, you want job security. Now we have to ask, okay, what other industries are there, right? What else do you want for your community? And then you could actually say, well, if we have the wind farm and it's generating more than enough electricity to grind the grains, what else can we do to reach that highest objective of the job security? Right, and, the, and the economic stability. And then, you know, you would kind of walk through that process when you ask them about other things that they want. So if you ask them like, okay, what to you represents a high quality of life, right? When you think about a high quality of life, what do you picture yourself having, doing, you know, seeing other people in your community do? And then the goal is to try to step up to get to what are the higher level objectives that are driving these different decisions. And then that can be used to inform the objectives of your model. And a lot of times, you know, you see costs play into that. But one time we heard somebody say, we want to maximize safety. And so we were thinking, oh, is it safety of like, people like the lines break and they land in a puddle and all of a sudden people are getting electrocuted? Or is it that there's no lights at night. And because the system is not reliable, is it that they feel like it's unsafe to walk in the dark? Is it, you know, your entire security system goes down when you have an outage? So there's all these different things that go into safety. And some of those safety things tie to needing a more reliable power system. Some of them tie to needing better maintenance on the power system. Sometimes they go hand in hand. Other times it was because you can't afford to pay it. So then, you know, your system runs out electricity and now all of a sudden you don't, you can't use that security system that is in your home because it just wasn't affordable. And so now that will also lead to these higher level objectives of why you want a low cost system, why you want a reliable system. And then that guides your implementation and your rollout of your grid. First of all, I love the the example of the 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 wind mills just being able to use them directly. And you know, we actually have uh, something similar here with with regard to solar, right? So we 
Um, we take our, our DC from our solar panels, convert it into AC, then convert it back into DC to charge all of our stuff in our houses, right? And so we have those same sort of inefficiencies, even if, you know, with a different type of technology. But well, what you're talking about here um, reminds me so much about the stakeholders in an integrated resource planning process. And I'm wondering if um, in your work you came up, you, you, you know, you've discovered any good methods or, or ways for utilities to improve their their stakeholder processes. So like who who are the people that we should be reaching out to to do these types of surveys and ask these questions um, so that we can incorporate that into our, our planning? Um, and and how's the, what's the best way to do that? So like one of the things that I struggled with is, you know, um, I'm paid as a, as a utility worker to, to be at these meetings. Nobody else is. And so uh, oftentimes the people who need to be there or, or should be there, maybe they, they just can't. So I'm curious, who, who, who do you think are those stakeholders we should be reaching out to and how, how we can reach them? If you have yeah, thoughts. I love Oh, I always have thoughts, um, <laughs> but um, I love that you drew that connection too between like that time piece and like the value of time because I also think that sometimes people don't see how the time that they spent gets integrated into the decision making process, which then can also lead them to wonder like how much of my time was worth it. I do think that there are a lot of community advocate groups out there that should be involved in these discussions and a lot of those groups that are, you know, actively working in the community, the nonprofits, the NGOs that have been there, maybe they're the housing redevelopment, right? I think that housing is directly tied to energy and there is a stake in them for that. So housing redevelopment organizations, um, there's also the energy assistance program managers and directors that, you know, often know a lot of the community advocate groups, which can be a great way to find out like, who are helping these people sign up for these programs, right? So people helping them sign up for energy assistance programs oftentimes have been talking with these people or with people in the community that may or may not, you know, be reaping all the benefits from the electricity system. And so then they can also have a good sense of what are a lot of people's barriers in terms of creating that high quality life with the electricity system right now. And I think that those can be um, pretty good, but really it's about figuring out the community advocate groups in your region and every region's different. You know, there's, um, there's also the mayor's office, which I have found to be a great connector because a lot of times different community groups are advocating for money to improve the community. So okay. the mayor's office can have a good sense of, who is advocating for different communities in the region, who is lobbying for money. And so that can also help um, with finding those community groups in the different regions. Interesting. And I, I would not have thought about the mayor's office. Yeah, I, no, I think the about the mayor's once. office all the time. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're thinking about like, who are the connected people in the community? A lot of times people say like churches are also very well connected um, in the community. I know through uh, my church, I had met a woman who didn't know she might have qualified for the low income housing energy assistance program. She, and she had heard about the weatherization program, but didn't know there was another program to help her with her bills throughout the year. And so there are times where churches do that. Um, I know that 
Um, there's some other groups that are, you know, looking for like single moms that are trying to help them out, right? Like renter advocate groups to advocate for the renter population. And that can be a helpful uh, place to engage as well. Yeah. Talking about like who to talk to, like begs the question of how to talk to them. And I think part of this is also the social sciences side of how to ask the survey question so that can, they can actually be interpreted into our quantitative models and be rigorously analyzed. Do you, is there anything in here about how you were able to structure your questions, the um, not just the strategic objective hierarchy, but also like the survey structure for energy topics that are not the normal areas of conversation for a lot of the advocacy groups that, you know, we'll engage with ultimately in the integrated resource planning process. One of the things that we found when developing the survey was we did need to have a short explainer video. And that required me to get really good at explaining electricity to a non-technical audience. And I think that that can be very challenging. When we were going into Ghana, I mean, we were talking to those, the chief that I mentioned, and they don't have electricity in most of their region, right? And even in the regions that do have electricity, a lot of people do not understand how it works. We had people asking, why isn't electricity not like milk? I go to the store, I buy milk, it is $4. I go back to the store, it is $4 for the gallon. When I go to buy electricity, I pay $200, I can use it for two weeks, I pay another $200, it's gone in you know, four days or something like that. And it had to do with the different pricing structures. Like when they topped up because they had to pay like per at the beginning of each month for electricity, the utility would just assume that you're using all that you paid for in that one month when that was not the case. If people went and tried to pay for double the amount of electricity that they needed, all of a sudden that pushed them into a different income bracket based on how much they were willing to spend and so now you get charged at a higher rate because you look like you're a higher income. When that was not the case, they would pool their money to try to use electricity for three months. They didn't have to go to the store every single month. And now it only lasts for half the time they were expecting. And so that uh, misunderstanding was a huge point of contention. I mean, there was a time where it got pretty heated. And as the person for who was definitely not from Ghana leading... <laughs> these discussions uh, and the youngest person in the room, it was nerve wracking to me because there was a time where the chief like slammed the table at point at the uh, power company and was like, you're stealing money from all of my people and I can't stand you. Right. And they just, there was a lack, there was a huge lack of trust because they did, there was a misunderstanding about how people were actually being charged. And once it was explained how the charges worked, the chief was like, can you please come back to my town and explain this to everyone else? Because now I understand, but I don't think I can explain it in the way that you just did. And so that is like a huge thing with the surveys, because I do think like there's just a lot of misconceptions about energy. Like even in the United States, <laughs> you'd be surprised. Yeah. A lot of people thought that electricity came from their light switch, came from the green box that sits outside of their home or the, you know, uh, gray box that sits on the pot, on the, on the wires and poles. And, you know, a lot of people haven't even seen the inside of a house to know it's just wires in there. There's nothing actually generating electricity in your home. And so taking a step back to say, this is how the grid works. 
but then not just starting with, okay, do you want this or this, but starting with, why do you want this? How do you envision the grid to be? Having those open-ended questions um, can really help identify like what the person cares about, or at least their initial perception of it is something that I found to be really helpful. It does become a little hard to analyze, right? Because it's nice when you can just analyze the, do they choose A, B, C, D, or E? Um, but I think having those open-ended questions did allow us to find out some things. And then we, so the workshop that we ran was like two days. We had a main survey that we delivered before we got there to try to get what people said. Then when we showed up for the workshop, we showed like, okay, this is how everybody's uh, responses were. Here's some graphs and things, but now let's talk about this. Like people have said they run a sustainable system and reliability is the biggest problem in the South. Why is that? What's, what's the problem? And so then we would have discussions and we had people at each table recording the conversation, both on tape recorders and by hand taking notes. And then we had to synthesize everything. And so I think a big challenge is trying to listen. And that is something that the social science community is very good at, like listening. How do you get what people truly care about out of what they're actually saying? I mean, you look at iPhone, right? Like people always said they wanted the cheapest phone and iPhone comes out with the most expensive phone on the market and it dominates the market. And I think that in the electricity system, you see that as well. A lot of times when we think about solar or distributed energy systems, the things that make people adopt are wanting freedom, right? Like economic freedom, they want stability, they want to lower their own bills or they want to have long-term stability in knowing what their bill will be, right? Like, and so those are higher level objectives besides just, I wanna get off the grid. There's a lot of different reasons why people may wanna do that. Yeah, there's a lot of soft skills here. Uh, one of the companies you founded, uh, the People's Energy Analytics, are they gonna provide these type of consulting services so we can use them for in uh, integrated resource planning? Because I do think utilities sometimes lack these soft skills. So I think one of the things with people, people's energy analytics is we are wanting to aid the energy transition and we are able to help provide the feedback on how you might design a survey. One of the things we also do is we use smart meter data to identify different community impacts. I know that's a paper that we'll get into a little later. So that's a slight teaser um, for all those listening. But at People's Energy Analytics, we help with the design of, okay, this is how we're envisioning our utility changing. Here's, let's get an assessment of where the problems are. We can do that. We can design the survey to help assess where the population is, how people are feeling, and then we can help analyze that as well. That's a great transition to the next one, which we, we, we'll get to after this. But I did want to highlight one of the things I learned from your paper and one of the techniques that I really valued is asking the participants what the cause of one, one of your conclusions was. I think it was there was this difference between reliability and cost preferences. And you actually asked your respondents why that could be, um, because insofar as uh, people don't understand electricity. I also don't understand people. And sometimes just asking the people in the same way, like explaining the thing I'm good at is really helpful. I thought that was great. Anything before we transition to the uh, energy equity gap? 
on that specific lesson and that specific technique? I think with the technique, the biggest thing that I will encourage people to do that want to apply the technique is to listen more than you talk. That was probably the most I was silent in any energy conversation I have ever been in, but I learned so much. And when we uncovered the chief feeling like the um, power plant company was stealing his money, that was the huge cause for mistrust. And a lot of people thought the mistrust of the system was the fact that it was too expensive and that there were too many outages. But the thing is, the lack of understanding on the cost structure and having different uh, people selling the top-up cards, so the cards they had to get at the beginning of the month, they would give different information to the chiefs and everything was conflicting. And so actually the lack of education was the cause of the mistrust. And lack of education, not just in the chief, but everybody who is managing the payment to the system, not being able to tell people how it really works. And so I think because of that, you know, we see that they want more liability, they want a cheaper cost, but the cheaper cost is because they didn't understand how they were being charged, right? And so if they, they actually said when they stayed in their income bracket and what was allocated to them, it worked and it was affordable, right? For for the majority, it's not affordable, but for the majority, uh, it was affordable. But then when they tried to not have to go to the top up every single month because it's expensive to get there. Now there's a non-electricity expense that makes it because of the way that they have to pay for it uh, for the electricity. The electricity system is like making it kind of more expensive in that sense because it just is expensive to get to these top up shops. Fascinating. Yeah, no, uh, it- listening more than you talk is a great skill. Let's do more of it. Ask curious questions. Amaz, I think we're ready for the next topic. All right. And this one's my favorite because this is the paper that made me say I need to meet destiny. Um, All right. So to recap, we're considering three papers and three topics to get to the ultimate question of what the future of the grid should look like. This third paper that we're diving into is a paper that you contributed to called Unveiling Hidden Energy Poverty Using the Energy Equity Gap. Um, And this paper investigates the ways which customers reduce energy consumption to limit financial stress. The paper notes that the effects of climate change will manifest as heat waves and deep freezes with the need for communities to reduce the risk of illness and death by creating comfortable indoor temperatures within their homes. Uh, An example of deadly heat waves um, um, are the extreme wet bulb temperatures in the southeast on Friday, June 30th, when wet bulb temperatures soared above 90 degrees Fahrenheit in Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Tennessee. So for listeners unfamiliar with the term wet bulb temperature, um, it's a measure of heat and humidity. Wet bulb temperatures over 87 degrees Fahrenheit or 31 Celsius um, is extremely dangerous to the human body, even if you're sitting in the shade, not moving and drinking water. At these temperatures, your body struggles to cool because the surrounding air is so wet, your sweat can't evaporate. And at around 95 degrees Fahrenheit, there is no amount of shade or lack of movement or hydration that can save you. Your body simply cannot lower its temperature. Um, Heat stroke sets in, your organs begin to cook, and death is inevitable. So you can clearly see how this is an important issue. Now, 
The recent examples of deadly temperatures highlights this importance of understanding the energy equity gap and developing social systems to reduce the risk of illness and death. Um, I I really feel like this brings in sort of a moral imperative, but uh, Destiny, can you start by describing the trade-offs being studied in, in the research? So in our energy equity gap paper, the big trade-off that we were looking at is when do people start using their cooling systems? And we were doing that in Arizona through a collaboration with the Salt River Project uh, Electric Utility down there. So we use smart meter data to look at how different households were using energy at different times of the year. And then we also tied their demographics to that um, and their income. So we looked at different income groups, different racial groups, and, you know, elderly populations, age groups, and things like that. So what we found in the work was that low-income groups were waiting five to eight degrees longer than high-income groups just to turn on their uh, cooling systems, right? So, and that's in terms of the outdoor temperature. So if you turn on your air conditioner when it is 80 degrees outside, that means that a low income person may be turning on their air conditioner when it's 87 degrees outside. And as we just heard, when the wet bulb temperature gets above 85 degrees, that is when it could be very dangerous. And we saw some households that were waiting until it was above 90 degrees to turn on their air conditioning units. Now that is a big concern because when we look at the indoor environment of the house, it takes a while to cool it down. So if you let that house get super hot, your air conditioner is going to have to run and run and run in order for it to cool itself. And sometimes you may not be able to cool it to a sufficient level. So that is um, one of the biggest things that we were finding. And then we were looking at trade-offs between people that spend the money on their electricity bills. So those that would have what we call a high energy burden, the percent of income that you spend on your bills versus those that have uh, are exhibiting signs of energy limiting behavior, which was the energy equity gap that I just mentioned. And one of the most interesting things that we found when we identified um, roughly 181 people that were having a high energy burden. So they were spending more than uh, 10% on their energy bills. And then people that were waiting until it was above 78 degrees Fahrenheit outside to start using their cooling system. We identified about 86 of those. Uh, and our the sample size was about uh, four to 6,000 people. Um, between those two groups, only three people overlapped uh, as being defined as energy poor under both. And so right now, energy burden is the main thing that we use to identify who is energy poor, energy vulnerable. But there's this huge section of the population that is potentially putting themselves at risk of heat illness or heat stroke that will be missed under this energy burden measure. And one of the reasons for that might be because they actually just don't use it. That is incredibly insightful. Um, and and I, I wish more people knew about that. As, yeah, this, this, this to, that to me is the most important finding um, that I've heard in a while. And if I understand it right, that people energy, people's energy analytics has this algorithm that you can test based on their hourly meter consumption, um, whether they are exhibiting this behavior. Is that part of the research identified this as a thing, but can you algorithmically find these groups and these individual people that you can then go support? 
Yes. So we at People's Energy, that's why we made People's Energy Analytics in the first place, because we wanted to be able to take the research and now do it and replicate that in different utilities, as well as really help uh, identify how different investments may be impacting these different communities as well. Right. So if you're thinking about, oh, I need to identify who may be at risk in my region then we can use the smart meter data to identify those that have a high energy burden, which is what you know currently we have to use surveys to do. But we can also do the energy limiting behavior. We can find out who is waiting a very long time to start using their energy systems. We can also identify who does not have an AC system or potentially has a broken air conditioning system. And as we are deploying heat pumps, as we're thinking about deploying air conditioning units Really, we need to go in and make sure that people actually have this technology. One of the key assumptions in Arizona was that everybody has an air conditioning unit, right? But we identified a number of households that did not, either did not use, it was broken, or they did not have an air conditioning unit. They all look similar in terms of the smart meter data. You just see a flat line, People just not using it over as the temperatures change. And that to me is a huge, huge uh, issue. There was a study by Iverson um, where they actually looked at heat-related deaths. So out of 228 heat-related deaths that occurred indoors, all of them had had air conditioning units. But 78, I believe, were um, choosing not to use their working air conditioning units. About um, about 30 of those households were disconnected from their electricity provider due to non-payment and um, roughly 120, I believe, were um, had a broken AC that they couldn't use, right? And so of those 220 deaths that occurred indoors and those deaths were because of heat, it was due to multiple reasons why they may not have felt like they could afford to use their air conditioning unit. Maybe they had used it in the past and then they got disconnected because they couldn't actually afford what they had used in the past or it was broken and they couldn't afford to fix it. So again, affordability showing up in different ways. But now with smart meter data, we can identify who's at risk and help, you know, use that for energy assistance targeting, use that for weatherization, use that to think about, you know, how we want to change, uh, how we want to change the approach as we are moving forward in energy transition. And that's what we do at People's Energy Analytics. Uh, I'm interested in the algorithmic, like the the solutioning for this. Um, it, it seemed as I was reading the paper, it's a lot like what we do on a macro scale for heating degree days and cooling degree days, where you find what we call like the base temperature or uh, the balancing point for our system overall um, and figure out where that is for calculations of our overall cooling degree days or heating degree days. Um, it sounds like a similar methodology where you're figuring out based on energy consumption where uh, that tipping point is. Um, did I, am I thinking of that right um, from a macro modeling framework? I think the difference is that we do it for each individual household. And then the key is that we are looking at the disparities between households, right? So when we're thinking about cooling or heating degree days, sometimes I see a lot of people using like 65 degrees uh, as like a target point, right? But now I'm assuming that the highest income group in the region are the ones without the budget constraint. And so they would be the ones to most likely just start using their air conditioner when it feels hot outside, 
right? Given insulation, I mean, insulation is going to make it feel different than the amount of shading or concrete will make it feel different. But you do see a lot of variability in that highest income group. And so then we can look at like, okay, well, how far away are low income groups from that highest income group? And when we replicated the analysis in the Chicago area in the summer, we found that people were the low income groups and high income groups, there was like a six degree difference. But in the winter, when we looked at when do people start turning on their heating systems, it was an eight to 10 degree difference, right? So now we're getting into like 10 degrees of difference for even just using your heating system. But the surprising thing was that low-income groups use their heating systems earlier than uh, high-income groups. And so why might that be? Most likely, we believe it's due to insulation issues. Because in the summertime, during the hottest time of the day, you get to leave your house. Everything's open. You can go to what we call cooling centers, the coffee shop, the library, or even your job, right? <laughs> but in the winter, during the coldest time of the day, you're stuck in your house, it's nighttime, and it just might feel cold, right? And so then you would be more likely to just turn on your system. And so as we we're thinking about, you know, energy conservation and getting people to use less, that really highlights, okay, well, you know, there's a lot of people that are using a lot more. Let's think about getting the people that are using the heating systems earlier. They're the ones that potentially need upgraded infrastructure in terms of the heating system, because maybe their heating is inefficient, maybe they need insulation. And so then we can use that to help target our programs, right? And look and identify them by the, you know, utility customer ID. And so instead of doing door knocking campaigns or calling random people or doing flyers, right? And just hoping we hit these swaths of the population, like now we can identify people at the address level that says, hey, you are spending a lot of money on your heat, you're using your heating system 10 degrees earlier in terms of the outdoor temperature compared to, you know, some non-contained groups. Do you need, like, how does it feel in your house, right? That can also help inform that survey. You can make it a more targeted thing about, like, where are your pain points? Why do you feel like you need to use it more? Is it just really cold? Is it maybe your windows are really leaky, right? Like, how do you currently cope? okay, are you needing extra energy because you have a medical issue, right? And there's some other things there. So I think that there's a lot of different ways that we can use this, uh, these analytics to target people. But I think it goes all goes back to different individuals are going to have different things they desire. They're going to have different barriers that they face. And I think using the smart meter data, we can actually help identify like, how can we you know, just assist people in getting to where they want to be. And a part of that is also finding out where do people want to be? You know, I'm just, with the we as an industry have just clamped on so strongly to um, energy burden as, as a metric. And like you've, you've just shown us how it, it doesn't really capture everything. Um, have you... Is, I want to know that that this work is getting out and that and that um, eventually like more and more people are going to start expanding beyond using just energy burden. I mean, that's a valuable metric, but that more people will recognize that that it's an incomplete picture and they need to look further into those hidden um, uh, energy equity gaps. Um, 
is there anything that that we can do or that you are doing that to sort of put that word out um, and to yeah just to get that word out and have us digging deeper beyond the energy uh, burden metric yeah i think the energy burden has value because it is a simpler metric but i agree that there are people that are going to be missed i mean we also didn't even talk about all the people that will get missed because they don't have air conditioners right so um one of the things that we have been doing to try to get out is we made the company, right? That is why we made the company because when it was a research endeavor, I could, you know, run a pilot, have students work on it. But now that we've shown the method, we've proven it, it's a published paper if people want to verify. It. And I do have YouTube videos uh, online if people need a quick, you know, explainer to tell other people at their companies about it. But now it's like, okay, let's take what we know and use that to make something, make the system better, right? So for example, um, one of the things that I've been asked by in the past by Salt River Project in a follow-up conversation was, hey, we call our customers and tell them to turn up their thermostats to 85 degrees when we are spiking. Like, is that what we really should be doing? And I'm like, probably not in all your houses, right? Like, if there are houses that do not have air conditioners, you should not call that house. That should that house should be off your call list because now they may actually unplug their window units, right? And we can also identify most likely who has a central unit versus window units based on our analytics. And so if you're wasting your time calling people that don't even have thermostats, that have window units that are not using that much energy in the first place, you're going to be wasting your time. And so now we can use our analytics to look at the overconsumers as well right? Who have those very steep curves? Who most likely has already cooled their home? Um, and you're not going to call people that have broken air conditioners. I think that that's like one of the things um, at People's Energy Analytics. We also look at better targeting for deployment of energy efficient technologies and helping utilities um, potentially manage their bad debt, right? We want to make sure that we are finding customers before they get into debt, before they're at risk of a disconnection. And I think that that is one of the barriers to positive interactions with the energy system for a lot of electric utilities, um, just because a lot of times everything's going great until it's not. And then you start getting those red notices. I can speak, for, it kind of makes my anxiety a little bit up because I do remember when I got disconnected from my electricity provider for not paying our electricity bill is a very traumatic experience. And, you know, our house became a giant tent, but our oil heating system was so gosh darn expensive that we were like, well, it's the winter, we need to pay the oil, <clears throat> we'd have to. And didn't even think about the fact that if you do not pay your electricity bill, your thermostat does not work and your oil heating system will not kick on. So it doesn't matter that you filled up the oil tank, right? And mm -hmm. In order to get back online with the electricity system, we had to pay the entire bill, right? All the payments that we did not have. And so when you think about like risk, credit risk, like um, just this heat or eat debate. Um, and now it's heat, electrify, eat. <laughs> if your heating system is not electrified. Um, that can be a big challenge for households to manage. And so getting on those payment plans, maybe you know, participating in some of these demand response programs that they may not even know they qualify for. Um, another thing is connecting them to smart thermostats because smart thermostats are great because then you can 
cut it on and off when you're away from the house. But I was, when I got disconnected, I was in a house with a manual thermostat and it was either you remembered to cut it off before you left or you didn't. And there was no, you know, pre-cooling the home. Oh, nobody's home. Let me cut off the thing. And that could have saved us a lot of money. So I think that there's a lot of different avenues that we can go down um, and to get the work out there and use it to make better decisions is something that we're hoping will come from just one interacting through the company, people interacting conversations like this, and just trying to let people know that you can do a lot of things with smart meter data. But again, it goes back to better targeting, getting down to the individuals, what's the health like in your region, and making sure that we understand the experience of the customers and what it really looks like. Um, we talked about maximizing utility benefits, but now it's time, I think, to get to the final question. Almaz, take it away. All right. So, yes, we have tackled ways to change the policy paradigm um, and ways to quantify stakeholder input into the models, ways to evaluate energy equity. So let's talk about that last question that we started with. Dr. Nock, what should the grid of the future look like? When I envision the grid of the future, I imagine one where people are able to adapt to climate change so they can be in their homes and they're not at risk of dying of heat stroke in their home or getting hypothermia in their home during a deep freeze. Heat stroke, of course, is in the summer um, and that they can afford their energy bill. So in terms of energy burden, that would be less than spending less than six percent of your income on your energy bills, um, but also being able to use enough energy to be comfortable in your home. As we are moving forward in energy transition, there have been a lot of things that have made us stay in our homes. Wildfire smoke in California, Canada, like it's, it's a thing now, right? Uh, the pandemic, right? Have remote work policies. There's a lot of things that have now made people more dependent on being able to create comfortable working, high quality of life environments in their home. And there's a lot of homes that can't do that. And so I would just hope that as we move forward with energy transition, we get to the part where we see the interconnectedness of working at the intersection of housing and energy. And we make sure that the houses can take in the energy technology. So anybody that has a decent roof can take the solar or the battery system or the EV system, um, the new electrical appliances, but also the energy system then can enable good housing infrastructure, meaning that we don't have to worry about our people not using electricity in the winter because they feel like they can't afford it and all of a sudden all their pipes freeze and now the landlord has to tell them that you have to move. When I was talking to the family in the bottom unit, they were a section eight family. And we just had to tell him, I'm sorry, you can't live here anymore. This house is unlivable and we can't let you do that. And she said there, she didn't know of any other Section 8 tenant, uh, Section 8 landlords that would accept her, right? And we were a landlord that she was kind of surprised by because we waited four months to get paid by Section 8. She said a lot, of, a lot of people won't do that. So now, you know, the house is vacant for six months. There's an affordable housing crisis currently going on. And as soon as we got our house finished being fixed, like two weeks ago, that Monday, a refugee family moved in, right? And so that just gives you an extent of the, the problem that, you know, people were trying to save money on their bills. And 
when we talk about poverty, sometimes it's a very negative view of, oh, those poor people, they're poor, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, no, poor people are very smart. <laughs> like as a person that was disconnected in the past, as I was struggling, trying to make it, trying to cover all of my bills when I was making like $12,000 for an entire year, trying to pay all these different bills, you make really tough decisions because you have to, not because you want to. And I think that a lot of that needs to come into our conversation. And I hope that we view equity as it is good for business, getting people to use more electricity systems and uh, sorry, more electricity and being safe in their homes is good for business, right? It's a good thing for not only the energy transition, but just making sure that people have the standard of life that we all deserve. That's a great place to to leave the hard discussion of what the grid of the future should look like. Um, so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to play a game. Public Power Underground is brought to you by NWPPA. The Northwest Public Power Association believes in the power of training and education. Every year, more than 6,500 public power employees learn and network at our classes, webinars, workshops, and conferences. NWPPA offers more than 200 event, 250 events, wowzer, to choose from in areas such as leadership, engineering, operations, accounting, and finance, communications, and many more. Sometimes this very podcast, Public Power Underground, is broadcast live from one of our events. We call that being more powerful together. What will you learn this year? Find an event that's right for you at nwppa.org forward slash catalog. That's nwppa.org forward slash catalog. Up next is our TIL segment I call Amaz's insightful question of the week because she asks our guests what she calls, quote, unfair questions, but are really incredibly insightful uh, if unfiltered and unscripted. Take it away, Amaz. Okay, I've been struggling with how to because every time you talk, every time we went through a different topic, I thought of a different way to ask this question. Um, but I hope it comes across um, yeah, in a way that you understand it. So I, I'm I'm thinking about the the difference between energy justice, if there is one um, that that you perceive between energy justice and energy assistance. Um, so utilities focus heavily on utility assistance. That's how we think about helping our low-income customers. Um, I happen to believe that there's a difference, that, you know, that, that, that there, there, there is an intersection. If you do a, a Venn diagram, like energy justice and energy assistance, there might be a place where they overlap, but they're actually two distinct things. Um, but the question that I have for you, just keeping that kind of in the background, is how would you describe energy justice to senior utility uh, executives that, that don't quite understand what energy justice is or how to implement it? And, and, and tend to, I mean, honestly, we, they tend to think oftentimes of just you know, utility assistance programs as being the end-all be-all. Hmm. For energy justice, there can be multiple components. And so I'll just kind of highlight three. Um, okay. So for energy justice on the kind of first side is procedural justice, which is in the decision making process. Can people participate in energy decisions that affect them, right, or their communities? So if a new power plant's coming in, if you're upgrading their transmission lines, if you're changing the costs that they have to pay, do they have any say in that? And if they do, if there's a process for them to engage in it, stakeholder engagement, community engagement, um, 
you know, just public commentary, right? That is kind of more on like the procedurally just like, can they participate in it? And the recognitional and restorative justice side, that's have people who have historically been harmed by the energy system been uh, given new benefits. So for example, if in the past you, you and your family have been at risk of heat stroke or had suffered from a lot of heat illnesses because you did not have air conditioning units, are we creating the energy system that allows them to one, adopt, fix their broken AC unit, adopt an AC unit, or be able to use it, right? And so that would be, but if you're if you're doing that to different community groups that historically have been excluded from using the energy system, then that is restorative and recognitional justice. Now, getting to the energy assistance piece, that I think falls into distributional justice, which looks at how the costs and benefits are distributed across the population of people. And so when you look at people that have higher costs, so when we think of high energy burden, right, that is where a lot of times people focus on like, okay, well, let's just give an influx of energy assistance to those households because they have a high level of costs right now. And I think that that is needed. Um, we need to have energy assistance programs. I mean, they need more funding as well. They need more people to uptake these. They have like a, um, they have a lot of opportunity for growth there because I think a lot of people who would qualify them don't even, sometimes I don't even know that they exist, right? Like that is a huge challenge. When I got disconnected, I had no idea that I might even qualify for an energy assistance program because in my mind, I wasn't poor. I was making it. It was a hard patch. It was just a rough patch, right? And I was about to make it out of my situation. I just had to work more. I had to eat less. When I told my fiance I was going to eat less, he was like, maybe you should think about another strategy for paying your energy bills. I was like, no, I just eat too much. Again, like I'm going to only drink water. I'm going to eat pasta. I did not fit in my wedding dress soon after that, right? It was like a lot of things going on. Um, and so when we think about distributional justice, that's how are these costs and, and benefits distributed. And so I think that um, reaching a electricity system that is just and equitable is the goal. But a lot of times there are different barriers. And so um, when we think about trying to reach that justice system, sometimes I think people are like, well, let me just give people some money. But then we miss the well, let's actually take down the systematic barrier that made it unfair, right? And I'm I think so glad you said that last sentence. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Get at the root cause. Yep. Yeah. It's like that. Uh, it's like that objective hierarchy. If we're going back to a previous part of the conversation, right? Trying to get to that root cause. Trying to get to what your real problem was, right? And is it really expensive in your house for your energy bills because you don't have insulation, because you don't have good windows, because you live in a high-rise apartment that is in a urban heat island, right? Like, what are the different strategies to do that? And so if we don't just stop at, like, just energy assistance and we try to get to these root causes, it will make it cheaper in the long run. And I think that that is what should be the goal of a just energy system. Right on. I love it. Right on. If, if we move from least cost uh, system planning to a utility maximizing approach for uh, that target the systems and desires of our customers, maybe we can get closer. Yes, for sure. 
Okay, Dr. Knock, I came up with two different games we could play instead of just unilaterally deciding. I figured I could ask for your input on which game you wanted to play. So would you rather play a game of energy, enthusiasm, distilled, where you, a world-renowned expert on a niche niche, niche energy topic, explain it, um, and then Almaz and I compete for uh, the quote-unquote uh, energy Twitter Bard's Merat by synthesizing it in an infotaining way in 34 seconds or less? Or do you want to play a new game I made up after a recent episode of Love It or Leave It where you rank pop culture depictions of energy infrastructure in a game John Lovett called Whack Mirror and we're calling From Humid Batteries to Solar Punk? I think I'll take the new game. You're going to take the new game from human batteries to solar punk. That really, that's okay. Let's do it. Um, So this game, you you are, you're tasked with ranking pop culture depictions of the future of energy infrastructure from one to five, where one is in your opinion, the most likely depiction of our future energy infrastructure. And five is the least likely. You have to give them a ranking TikTok style. You're not going to know the next depiction from energy uh, pop culture. So I'm going to give you one and you have to rank it from one to five. And I'm going to give you the next one. And you don't have that choice anymore. You got to then rank it from one to whatever, leaving out the one you just assigned. Does that make sense? Ah, okay, okay. Yep, got it. It's not easy. It's definitely not easy. And Almaz, your task is commentary on her choice. And I I think you have the answer key so you can provide some commentary along the way. Okay, we ready? Sounds good. Okay, first one up is The Fifth Element, a 1997 sci-fi action movie starring Bruce Willis as Corbin Dallas, set in a late-stage capitalistic society where transportation, housing, and energy infrastructure are hyper-optimized around profit motives, and the main antagonist is an industrialist working on the side of an even great evil at the expense of the ongoing functioning of civilization. The Fifth Element. How would you rank it from one to five in its depiction of the grid of the future? Uh, I'll go with uh, four. All right. Take it away, Almaz. Any commentary? Do you have any commentary on that? It's a... So just to give us one again, number one means the most likely to to happen. Okay, right. so that I, I'm seeing Destiny as more of an optimist here. I would have ranked it a little <laughs> higher. Like it, it, there's there's a good possibility that could happen. But let's keep right. going. Also, she doesn't know the other choices yet. That's true. That's, That's true. true. I'm I'm like hedging some of my bets here. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, next up is the Matrix. Uh, the 1999 action sci-fi movie starring Keanu Reeves as Neo and Carrie Ann Moss as Trinity, where artificial intelligence won the war with humanity and started using, a spoiler alert, by the way, spoiler alert, uh, started using human beings as batteries after nuclear fallout blocked out the sun. On one hand, nuclear fallout, not good. But on the other hand, a symbiotic relationship with advanced technology. Yeah, and now you're kind of... You can't use four. I know, I can't use four, and it's like, how likely would I think the end of the world? (laughs) I I know, nuclear, don't do it to us. Um, So I'm going to say... I'm going to say... Well, how far in the future am I ranking it? I don't know, just some future. Remember the name of the game is from human batteries to to solar solar punk. punk. 
All right, so I guess I'll go with a five. That's what I would recommend. (laughs) (laughs) Having made the game. It's a scary future, so that's wishful thinking on my part. Yes, five. Okay. In the next I mean, episode, how often are we all likely to be human hamsters? So, yeah, pretty good. It's probably, I mean, it's not terrible. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm here for it. In 2009 blockbuster film Avatar, humans extrapolate the mineral unobtainium from the distant planet Pandora to serve their insatiable energy needs and export them back to Earth. I mean, if we can't extrapolate our fossil fuels, who's to say we can't extrapolate some other planet's minerals without increasing carbon emissions? After all, it's not fossil fuels if they are fossils. <laughs> That's true. Although with our ex- current exploration, I'm going to give that one a three. You're going to give that one a three. There we go. Okay. Okay. Uh, next up, a secret government agency has technology of, quote, non-human origin. And Ezra Klein did a podcast about it. It's also the premise of the 1997 sci-fi movie Men in Black, starring Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. Professor Nock, how likely do you think it is that we'll power our future using covertly shared alien technologies? <laughs> um, let's see. Now it's also like, what do I think the last one is as well? <laughs> That's right, because you're not the last uh, two. I know. This is like, this is hard. Um, I believe in the government to share everything with us. <laughs> I'm going to go with a, I guess I'll go with a two. There we okay. go. Okay. Good choice. <laughs> In in the world of the 2008 Pixar animation film Wall-E, society awakens from a consumeristic culture to return to a sustainable agrarian earth thanks to a solar-powered trash robot nurturing a sprout. Professor Nock, how hopeful are you for a solar punk take on cultural rehabilitation that works towards actualizing a sustainable future interconnected with nature and community? I guess by default, I think this is the most likely opportunity for us to rehabilitate ourselves. Go robots. Yeah. How, how hopeful are you of a solar punk future? How and do you watch Wally? Have you watched it? I have this... watched Wally. It was a very adorable movie. But do I think that um most of the I think that Wally was like the only one left and like there were only a bunch of humans on a ship up in space. So I would hope <laughs> I would hope that they all came some. back at the end. Spoiler alert, yeah, they, they all did. came back in the end. They did, but I'm like, do we have enough ships for us to land up there and sleep for that long? I don't know. I don't know if I trust it. <laughs> how do you how do you think she did, Amaz? Oh, oh, well, I think she did really good putting all the scariest stuff towards the end. So, like, if we're going to have the robots take over, they're going to take over for good. So, they're going to make us better. I like it. Uh, to review, we had the solar punk future as the most likely. We had aliens as the second most likely, advanced alien technology. Extrapolating <laughs> from space is the third. The fourth being the dystopian, ultra-consumeristic ev- evolution of our energy mix and the fifth element. And last was human batteries. And after having gotten all of them, any revisions you want to make, Professor Not? I think the fifth element should have been like closer to the front, probably. For consumering? I- yeah. Yeah, I think of uh, I think of that as like mid. I, it's probably number two. I like to think of it as number three. Another version of that. I don't know if you ever watch Futurama. Uh-huh. The, the, like, yeah, I think of Futurama in the fifth element as this same type of hyper evolved uh, capitalistic take yeah. on energy. And so go ahead, Amos. 
Well, I was going to say it's too bad there wasn't an energy just future amongst one of these. I know that's what I was holding out for. I was like, do we have hope? <laughs> so I also considered, I also considered, have you read the Monk and Robot series by Becky Chambers? Um, I have not. It's, it's, a, it is, uh, it is the like agrarian, but solar technology, renewable energy, sustainable energy. It's a book. So it didn't feel like it really fit. I also thought about Strange World, the Disney movie recently, which is another, I think, better example of uh, a circular economy kind of thing. Have you seen it, Dr. Knock? No, I haven't. Okay, well, you can check out those two those two pieces <laughs> of content. They're both great. I know. I'm glad you picked some later movies that I had actually seen. Because right? I actually had no. seen all the movies that you had. So. Oh, good. Success. Success. <laughs> Absolutely success. Well, thank you for all of it. Uh, and thank you for participating. I really do hope you enjoyed yourself, Dr. Knott. Yeah, this is a great conversation. Thanks for having me on. And Amaz, I hope you feel valued and appreciated. Did you enjoy it too? Of course. This this is now my favorite episode yet. <laughs> my favorite. Always good to talk with you, Destiny. Nice to talk to I you. Feel like, I feel like we do, we've done a pretty good job of like escalating. Each one seems like your favorite, Amaz. I know. <laughs> Which is good. It means I'm doing a good job of like making sure my content meets your standards. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's all the energy and energy adjacent topics we're covering this week. Public Power Underground is a production of Seattle City Light and News Data. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data's weekly newsletter to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. Without and within. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. Public Power Underground is a production of Seattle City Light and News Data. The views expressed to our own are not the official views of Seattle City Light, Tacoma Power, News Data, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. Today's uh, episode was written and produced by Ashley Dockery, who helped me with all of these pop culture things, along with Matt Shretnik and Crystal Ball, who also consulted on the pop culture references that uh, most people would be familiar with, but also have energy depictions of the future. So thank you to their contributions. It was also written by myself, Paul Dockery, and Amaz Nagesh. And it's edited and published by the Stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources with sound mixing by Lucas Smith and video editing by Brendan Delzer. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. Into the laughter through thick and through thin for public power enthusiasts without and within.